The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Thank you, Thea, for doing that for us. Well, good morning and welcome to Story City Church's Burbank location. We are stoked you are here this morning. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. We, uh, again, we're so glad to see you. I love that hashtag, your story is welcome here. Today, we're kicking off a new series called The Living Story, What's Yours? But before we do that, I'd like to spend a few minutes in prayer together. Um, If you've been here for any length of time, we've been doing this this year, just spending some time in pastoral prayer. Today is a little bit different, though, because today marks the remembrance of the Armenian genocide. And so um, this is in 1915. The Ottomans came into Armenia, and there was something like 1.5 million uh, Armenian deaths. And this is um, the day that we remember this, and so we're going to spend just a few minutes praying about that. Would you join me? Lord God, even as we look at a passage of scripture today that talks about war and battle, we know that was never your intention for us. We know that you designed a place where we could live, Lord, in perfect community because you are in perfect community with yourself And it was our sin that broke the relationship between you and us, between humans, between each other, and between us and this planet, this world. We've broken those things. Lord, we know that the only path to restoration, to true peace peace is found in you. And while we can put effort into changing this world, the truth is that we suffer from a sin problem and those sin problems will always cause us to look at our own concerns and our own cares over the cares of others. So this morning as we stop and remember a great tragedy for the Arminian people, Lord, we cry out to you and ask that you would continue to bring healing and peace to this world. Lord, even today, there's tragedy and war. Think of the Ukrainian people. God, we desperately need you. We desperately need you. Would you bring your ways of doing things and not our ways? Would you bring your way of looking at the world and not our way? Would you bring your way of looking at people and loving people, not our way? We've tried our way, it doesn't work. So Lord, we ask that you'd bring hope and healing specifically to the Armenian population, specifically to the Ukrainians this morning, that you'd bring peace, that you would empower your church, that you would cause your church to continue to go out 
and share about you, not so that we can make our churches bigger, Father God. God forbid that we care about our name or our kingdom more than yours, but so that people can find hope and healing and restoration in you because you are the answer to our stories. Father, this morning as we look at this passage, I pray that you would help us to see not just how this applies to us, but how we can help explain you to others, how we can help people to know you and love you and see the true and the living God, how we can cut through the lies, the misconceptions, the misunderstandings of who you are and what you do. So speak to us this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the misconceptions about the Bible, and I hear this as a pastor all the time, is, oh, the God of the Old Testament was such an angry and vengeful God. He was so different than the God of the New Testament. Some people feel that, well, maybe he wasn't different, but he certainly interacted with us differently. Or, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they don't seem to be really connected. They're kind of, they're two separate things. But the truth is that they actually can't exist without each other. They don't exist without each other. You can't have the New Testament without the Old Testament. In one of the episodes of her podcast, How to Teach the Bible, scholar Nancy Guthrie and her guest, Lane Tipton, point out that the Old Testament is both Christ-centric, it's centered around Christ, but it's also Christ-hopeful. It points to the coming of Christ. And it does that in ways that maybe aren't even as obvious as we all think. Today we're going to explore one of those ways. But Tipton explains, these scriptures don't come to be about Jesus, talking about the Old Testament, they don't come to be about Jesus when reinterpreted by Christians. In his interaction with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus even explains that prior to his coming, prior to the inspiration of the writing of the New Testament, the Old Testament scriptures on their own are about Jesus and point to the coming of Jesus. Why does this matter to us today? Because ultimately that's why we're here, right? To figure out why does this matter? Why is this important? It's important because the gospel isn't just that Jesus died and rose again. That's certainly a part of it, but that's only half of the gospel. See, Jesus' death and resurrection is the start, but the, the truth is the gospel is that God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection allowed us to be free from the punishment we deserve for our treasonous rebellion against God. But it also means that he made us new creations in him. That each and every day he's continuing to make us more and more like Jesus and less and less like the selfish, disobedient unbelievers that we are and have been. But it also means that one day he's going to come and set all things right. And so we've been saved We are being saved, and one day we will be saved. And because that's true, it means that the Old Testament then is actually still relevant and applicable to our lives today. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at a lot of stories from the Old Testament that have these uh, supernatural, miraculous interactions between God and people. And one of the things that comes up with these often is, is that today we try to explain a lot of these away. We're like, well, I guess it could kind of happen if maybe this and this happened. But the point is we're trying to fit something that is, by nature, supernatural, which means outside of the natural, so that we can understand it and say, no, it could be real. 
But let me tell you that things like Jesus raising people from the dead and uh, uh, stories of supernatural occurrences were not normal in their day either. That's why they're miracles. And so it's important as we listen to this, we see this, that that some of this stuff is like, okay, (laughs) it seems impossible. Yeah, it is impossible, except for God. Today in particular, we're looking at a story of a young man named David and a Philistine warrior champion named Goliath. In our story, uh, we, we obviously we shortened some of that for the reading portion today because we didn't want Josh and Brittany up here trying to translate for three hours as we, uh, as we did this. But our story is found in 1 Samuel verses, uh, 17, verses 1 to 50. And so let's start off with a little bit of that story today. 1 Samuel is in the Old Testament, chapter 17, verses 1 to 50. It says this. The Philistines were standing on one hill, and the Israelites were standing on another hill, with a ravine between them. Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. That's kind of tall. And wore a bronze helmet and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was bronze armor on his shins and a bronze javelin was slung between his shoulders. His spear shaft was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition... A shield, bearer was walking, uh, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. He stood and shouted to the Israelite battle formations, why do you come up to line up in battle formation? He asked them. Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so we can fight each other. When Saul and all Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Okay, verse 11 right there. It says, when who in all Israel lost their courage? Saul. Pay attention to that, okay? Highlight it, underline it, remember it, whatever you gotta do. That's important for us today. All right, there's this guy named Jesse. He's got a bunch of kids bunch of sons the three oldest were actually serving in Saul's army and they're standing there on the hill facing Goliath there they are there Saul's youngest is a shepherd and uh, he is tending his father's sheep his name is David David is sent to bring his brother some supplies to check on them uh, dad is pretty prudent he actually says hey take some supplies to your commanding officer too so he's trying to make sure that the kids are taken care of dad's smart And uh, David arrives and he sees these two armies standing at an impasse on these two hills of the ravine in between. And he sees the Philistine army send out their champion, Goliath, and challenge the armies of Israel. Now again, Israel's terrified. It it literally talks about when when Goliath comes out that they, they get scared and it gives this idea that they're kind of retreating a little bit when they see him. This is not uh, a pretty picture And you can tell that the Philistines kind of know this is going on. They're toying with him a little bit. But King Saul is terrified as well. And I think that's really important here. That he has no idea what to do. In fact, King Saul has actually offered a ton of money, his daughter in marriage, and then here's the really important one, no more taxes for the families ever again. I'd be like, okay, what's the, what do I got to (laughs) do? Sign me up. David Despite this, it's like, is there no one that's got the courage to take on this guy? I mean, guys, we serve God here. What, even despite all this stuff, there's no one that's got this? 
And Saul here is David making these comments, and he calls for David to meet him. And David's like, I'll take on Goliath. Let's do this. <laughs> Our God's bigger than their God. And Saul says, hey, you're too young. And David says, well, hey, look, as a shepherd, I've actually had to protect my sheep. And so I've fought off lions and bears by myself, and I've won against them. I can do this. And somehow, Saul must be really desperate. Saul's like, sure, okay, uh, let me arm you. David's like, I'm not going to take your armament. And so David goes out to face the Philistine champion. We pick the story back up in verse 40. Instead, he, meaning David, took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in his pouch, in his shepherd's bag. Then, with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with a shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Now, the actual literal translation of this curse is something I can't repeat in church. It's pretty bad. So know that he is like, who do you think you are coming against me in some of the most vulgar terms possible? And then he curses David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistines, and this is key to understanding David's point here, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. David reframes the purpose of this battle. He says, not you and me, bro. You're challenging God here. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses, this is graphic, I know, sorry, give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then, and and David says, this is the point of all this, all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. When the Philistine started forward to attack him. David ran quickly to the battle line to meet him, meet the Philistine. David put his hand in the bag, took out a a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down to the ground. I want you to remember that this giant was wearing a helmet. So the fact is, this is, while he's running, has to place a stone from a sling, right, like this, okay, into a specific place. This is a miraculous shot. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell face down to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. He overpowered the Philistine and killed him without having a sword. Now, some of you guys have heard this story and some of you haven't. I get that. But most of us have heard of, even if you haven't heard the exact story, you've heard of David versus Goliath in all kinds of different references, correct? Right? Yeah, usually it's some sort of small business taking on some gargantuan chain, something a la you've got mail. <laughs> this story has become almost synonymous with, with the, the little guy overcoming the odds and winning. There's only one problem with that. That's not what this story is about whatsoever. In fact, While it does feature David and Goliath, this story actually isn't even about David or Goliath either. You're like, wait, what? This story isn't about David and Goliath. It's about David versus King Saul. This story is not about David and Goliath. This story is about David versus King Saul. 
King Saul was the very first king of Israel. God had told him, hey, I'm going to be your God. I'll be your king, but you're going to rebel against me. You're going to want a king like the other nations anyway. I'm going to give it to you, but guess what? It's not going to work out, just so you're aware. And the Israelites push and push and push, and finally God tells the prophet Samuel, hey, all right, go ahead and pick this king. Go ahead and do it. There's trouble on day one, though. They pick the, the guy that's tallest among them, looks most like the warrior. He's like, the Bible says he's like a head and shoulders above everybody else. They anoint him king, and then they can't find him. He actually goes hiding. He's like, I don't know that I want this job, right? It does, it's not a very auspicious beginning. And so King Saul, it's not long before King Saul starts doing things his way instead of God's way. And God finally gets tired of it. And he says, all right, Samuel, I want you to go and anoint another king. And so look at the chapter, only one chapter before this. We're in chapter 17. Look at chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16, 1 to 4. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul's going to hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, Take a young cow with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me, this is as king, the one that I indicate you. Skip down to verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature because I've rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. The Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shema. But Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel must be really confused at this point. He asks, look, is this all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, he answered. But right now he's tending sheep. Check this out. Jesse so doesn't believe that this is the one to be anointed. He leaves his son in the field tending the sheep. He's like, it can't be the youngest. They're still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down to eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes and a healthy, handsome appearance. Look, that's not the way that, that God is saying that you anoint kings because they have a healthy, handsome <laughs> appearance. It's just a way to say that he was uh, beloved and, uh, and God had graced him. God was with him as part of what they're trying to express. Then the Lord said, anoint him for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord, this is important, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. Then, the same, then Samuel sent out and went to Ramah. Okay, so before the David and Goliath incident even took place, God had already chosen David to be the future king. Before David and Goliath happens, David has already been anointed as the future king. This is a bit awkward then, right? Like, Saul doesn't know yet, but David absolutely knows that he's supposed to be king. And so this whole story is actually contrasting the heart between the two leaders, the past king of Israel, even though he doesn't know it yet, and the future king of Israel. Remember, Saul's way of handling this whole thing is he's hiding. He's trying to pay people to do the work for him. He doesn't trust in God at all. This isn't even about God. God doesn't come up in this conversation for him. He's like, uh, somebody better do something here. I'll make you rich, give you my daughter, and no more taxes. But how does David see the problem? If you look at verses 
26 and 36, it says, David sees the Philistines as defying God. Verse 37 says, David knows that God is with him. This is about God for David. And then look at verses 43 to 47 again. The Philistine says to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? And he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. Now here's David's heart. It gets revealed right here in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin. These are the tools of war. But I come against you with what? In the name of the God of Israel. The name of the Lord of armies, the God of, his, the, God of the ranks of Israel, you've defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpse of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and, all, and the wild creatures of the earth. Why? Because then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know the Israelites. He's talking about the Israelites will understand that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. David knows the victory is going to come by God, not by his own strength. Goliath curses David by his gods. David responds by saying, your gods are nothing compared to the one true God, Yahweh. David says, this is a battle between Yahweh and your false gods. And he says, the outcome is going to prove that Yahweh is the one true God, that there is no others. And so we can truly see this story isn't really even about David versus Goliath, but about the one true God in the heart of these two men who are kings of Israel. So what does this have to do with us? If you're taking notes today, this is the first observation for the day. We aren't expected to be the hero. We who are apprenticing Jesus are not expected to be the hero. Because this story isn't about David versus Goliath, it's easier for us to see it's not David who accomplishes the victory. David even says that, I'm not going to do this. I can't do this without God. Only God could have accomplished this. Going back to chapter 16, verse 13, it says, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And what? The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on him from that day forward. David recognizes he couldn't have done it in his own strength. It was the Spirit of the living God in David that accomplished the victory. You guys with me so far? David knows that if there's going to be victory, it's only God that accomplishes it. We are not the heroes of our story, and we are not meant to be. As you listen to the testimonies each week for the next couple weeks, you will hear that it's not, I did this, it's this is what God did in me. Jesus is the hero of all of our stories as well. So Jesus is the hero of this story and the hero of our story. Whenever we hear this story or a version of it from now on, whenever we hear any story, we should be looking and seeing who is being made the hero because if it's not Jesus, then it's not the gospel. The truth is that we can't accomplish anything on our own. God accomplishes what he is. The gospel is always about Jesus' work, not our work. If you're taking notes today, this is our second observation. This is a little bit longer, so I want you to hear this out. It's not about our trial, our qualification, or our ability, or even our faith. It's about who our God is and what he's done. It's not about our trials, our qualifications, our abilities, or even our faith. It's about who our God is and what he's done. Anytime that we experience trials or difficulties, the way we approach it isn't like the little guy trying to take down the big guy and be like, I hope God is with me, I'm charging the hill. It's about resting in the work of our champion. It's about remembering that we are the scared Israelites on the hill watching our champion do battle for us. 
There's something fascinating about the word champion in this case. One of its meanings is an intermediary, somebody who stands in the gap on our behalf, especially in battle. Goliath, this giant, represents the Philistines, but David doesn't represent the Israelites. No, David, who's going to be called a man after God's own heart later, actually represents Yahweh, the true and living God. See, in this way, David's actually a picture of Jesus and what Jesus is going to do for us, to be the one that stood in the gap and became our rescuer, our savior. And so the story isn't just a nice story in the Old Testament about overcoming the odds. It's a story that points us to Jesus and shows us how to trust in him, how to believe in him as our savior and our rescuer. You see, those of us who are apprenticing Jesus, far too often we fail to believe the identity we've received as his disciples. The Bible says that when we begin apprenticing Jesus, we become his disciples. We're no longer citizens of the kingdom of sin and death, but we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as citizens, we've been made sons and daughters of the living God. That's incredible. Some of us hear that word every single week and we don't believe it. So how do we actually live in that new identity as we face trials of everyday life? We have to continue to learn how to believe. We have to continue to learn how to believe. We have to continue to submit our lives to the truth of the gospel. In his book, Gospel Fluency, Jeff Vanderstelt writes about another author. He says, Tim Chester, in his book, You Can Change, asserts that underlying every sinful behavior and negative emotion is a failure to believe a truth about God. Let me say that again. Underlying every sinful behavior and negative emotion is a failure to believe a truth about God. He then suggests four liberating truths as a good diagnostic tool for addressing sin in our lives. These four truths make up our third and final observation for the day. So if you're taking notes today, here are four ways, four diagnostic tools we can use to address sin in our lives and look at the truth of God. God is great, so we do not have to be in control. God is great, so we do not have to be in control. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves. Vanderstelt goes on to write, Let's take that first truth as an example. If we believe that God is great, that he is in control, then we can trust him and be free from the need to take control or manipulate situations. On the other hand, if we feel anxious or have the urge to take control, it's because we have believed the lie that God is not great, that he's not really powerful and in control, so we have to be. Do you see what I mean about not believing a truth of the gospel? If we believe that God is good and that God is great, then the truth is that he is good enough and great enough to take control of any situation. If we don't believe that, then we feel there is a need for us to take control. And when we do, we're basically saying that we don't trust or believe God is who he said he is. This story about David and Goliath and and David and Saul is actually a powerful reminder for us today that Jesus is good and faithful and powerful and ultimately that he is our champion. It's a reminder that the story of God is one of a faith justful, uh, I'm sorry, faithful, just, and merciful God who has met us in the middle of our unbelief and made us belong even before we believed. 
He's a just and faithful and merciful and loving. He, he's so just and faithful and merciful and loving that he came, to, did the work of our salvation and transformation. He is our champion. The good news is that it doesn't matter if you're just checking this Jesus thing out today or you've been apprenticing, discipling him for a long time. Our job is the same. It's to learn how to believe. The good news is that the Holy Spirit is here to help us do that, to do the hard work of living in the truth of the gospel and the truth of our gospel identity through Jesus, our champion. Let's pray. God, you are incredible. You're amazing. I thank you that you are our champion, that the work that you do isn't based on how good we are, whether we're faithful or obedient, but the work that you do is because of who you are. As you are good and loving and kind and just, merciful. You are the one who fights on our behalf, Lord. That our job is to simply believe in the identity that you have given us as your children, as your citizens of your kingdom, as your adopted sons and daughters. Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name.